0: Hello and welcome to Coasting Country, the official podcast powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I'm your host, Brian Scott Smith. The world around us contains amazing creatures, plants and microscopic life. And in this podcast, we're discussing plant pathology and the microscopic organisms that can affect them. Taking us through this fascinating area of science and discovery are Dr. Lindsay Triplett and Dr. Stephen Tarum from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station's Plant Pathology and Ecology Division. So, Lindsay and Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Today we are talking about plant pathology, which I started looking into this when I knew I was going to do this podcast with you, and it's an incredibly interesting area of science. So tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Well, plants get sick too, just like people do. All of the effort that we put into growing crops for our feed and our fuel and our clothing, cotton and things like that, uh, we lose globally about 40% of that to different pests like weeds, insects, and microbes. So plant pathology is the study of those microbes. It can be fungi, bacteria, but also viruses um, and other fungal-like organisms that cause disease. So plants get sick pretty much the same that humans do.
0: Now we're going to be talking uh, specifically about protists today.
1: Yes, yes. So we'll get into the definition of protists in a second, but I think it's first important to introduce the concept of the plant microbiome. So we, we do a lot of research and focus on these detrimental pathogenic organisms that cause disease of plants. But plants have a microbiome just like humans do. So you might be always hearing about the gut microbiome and probiotics. Um, humans have different combinations or communities of bacteria that live on your skin. You'll have different microbes on your eyelashes. And the most important is your gut microbiome. So with plants, they will have a different community of microorganisms living on flowers, living on the leaves and the stems. And the most of those will be along the roots. So there's very specialized communities of microorganisms that are very dynamic and very abundant that live on that root surface. Um, So if you take just a teaspoon of soil, any teaspoon of soil, there's going to be billions and billions of bacteria, but also hundreds of thousands of fungi and uh, viruses and a few thousand protists and small animals as well. Now protists is not really a biological concept. It's sort of a shorthand for anything that doesn't fit in all of those other categories. So anything that's not a fungus, not a plant, not an animal, and not a virus, we call a protist. But really that encompasses huge diversity of microscopic organisms. And just like the other organisms, a few of them cause disease. But the rest of them, we think, could be beneficial and have a lot of different roles for the plants. They are much more difficult to study than fungi and bacteria, which is why we know so little about them. And there's so few scientists studying this area. But our research, we're trying to figure out what protists are growing on the plants, whether the plants are selecting for certain of these protists, and, and what kind of jobs they could be doing to help the plant.
0: So Stephen, tell us a little bit about your involvement in this area of scientific work.
2: Sure. So I was uh, brought into the project uh, as a uh, protistologist. I had previously worked with a group of protists that were actually associated with cockroaches and uh, termites. And so I'm uh, bringing my expertise as, you know, somebody that has had quite a bit of work with this fascinating hugely diverse group of organisms. So presently what we're trying to do is determine which protists uh, specifically are brought in by into the plant microbiome. So plants in essence, uh, recruit much of their microbiome. They tend to leak a lot of stuff, a lot of compounds from their roots, which then attracts a variety of microorganisms. And we're trying to figure out, first of all, which protists are brought in and specifically enriched in the
0: plant microbiome. So that's absolutely fascinating. (laughs) People who are going to be listening to this are going to be going, hey, that's great but how does that help me?
2: Well, it turns out that a number of these protists will actually impact the rest of the microbiome. So for instance, the microbiome contains a variety of bacterial species, and some of these bacteria may be pathogenic. So there's evidence that some of the protists that are uh, recruited are predatory. So we know that some of these uh, protists are predatory, I should say. And uh, they, in some cases, will selectively feed on the bacteria, which can, in some cases, benefit the uh, plant itself. So one of the ways is by suppressing populations of bacterial pathogens – Another way is by essentially leading to the release of uh, nutrients. So they'll feed on the bacteria, and basically one of the byproducts of that feeding is nitrogen uh, in in a form that can be taken up by the plants.
1: Yeah, I think to step out a little back a little further, globally, and, and in America especially, We're having more and more people per acre of land that we grow crops on. And so we have to continue to keep trying to get more productivity out of the same amount of land to feed a larger number of people. At the same time, the climate's getting more extreme and plants have to be able to tolerate a lot of different stresses. So breeding-wise, and all the crop scientists have done an excellent job over the past few decades at increasing the productivity of our crops. But that increase is starting to plateau. So we're really having to start and get creative about how we can continue to increase crop productivity. Now, the The microbiome industry is one way that we've been able to do this. So right now, globally, we have a $6 billion industry in these agricultural microbial products that's growing 15% a year. It's projected to be $12 billion by 2025. And a lot of those products really help plants to to resist the drought, to resist pathogens. These are beneficial bacteria and fungi that you can coat onto seeds or inoculate into the soil that help plants grow. But there's a lot of problems still that we don't understand why these bacteria are not really surviving well in the soil. And we think one of the reasons these might have a hard time surviving is because protists are eating them all, for example, or protists could be helping other bacteria. So that's one of the things we're looking at is finding protist-resistant bacteria that are beneficial to the plants and knowing what that sort of dark matter of the soil is doing.
0: When we talk about protists as well, just give us a little bit more of a, like um, uh, an understanding. You know how many types of protists are there? Do we know?
1: I would say no is the short answer to that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we're discovering that the diversity of protists is much higher than originally believed. So scientists have been aware of the existence of protists for a very long time. But as Lindsay was mentioning earlier, they've been incredibly difficult to study. So they tend to be single-cell, sort of similar to bacteria, and... In the past, scientists would look at them under a microscope and they would basically describe what they looked like. And that was how they would classify these organisms. But with the advent of molecular biology, so effectively working with DNA, we've discovered that the diversity of these protists is astronomical. And there are some estimates that they may make up Well, if if you look at the group that contains animals, plants, and fungi and all their relatives, they may outnumber animals, plants, and fungi by almost a 20-fold factor in terms of diversity.
1: So there's 20 times as many kinds of protists as there are animals, plants, and fungi put together.
0: And
2: that's based on estimates. It may be much higher than that, even.
0: That is a significant figure. That's an astronomically significant figure, To the point of, if we didn't have any of these, life on Earth probably wouldn't exist then.
1: Well, certainly they might be very ancient. So when you look at all the diversity of protists there are, there's all sorts of things in cells or non-bacterial cells that don't exist in any of these larger organisms that we see. So some people think of protists as, you know, what could have been or what, you know, the, the nature's experimental lab that didn't really develop into any multicellular organisms or anything we can see. But there's a lot of weird and wacky cell parts, cell structures, chemical reactions that really don't exist anywhere else. And there's a lot of interesting research going on on things we can do with that.
2: And something I would actually like to add to that that's very interesting about protists is animals in general actually originated from protists. Our ancestors, if you go far enough back in the past, were protists and that's true also for plants and it's true for
0: fungi as well. So we all came from that primordial ooze then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sort of, yes.
0: Excellent stuff. So I want to just quickly touch upon for, you know, the people listening to this, a famous protist. Tell us about, you know, one particular famous protist so that people can get an idea of, you know, what it is that we're talking about even more.
1: The protist that you've probably heard of is Plasmodium falciparum. This causes malaria. So that has a huge impact all over the world and has caused a lot of destruction. Phytophthora is a kind of protist that infects a lot of different types of plants. And this caused the Irish potato famine or Ireland's great hunger in the 1840s. And you might hear a lot about brain-eating amoeba in the news nowadays. So if you happen to get some pond water up your nose. There's possibly protists that could be pathogenic, and we don't have a lot of uh, treatment for that. So that's a very, very rare and unusual, but also a scary outcome of certain types of protists. But as with anything else, we only hear about the most damaging ones. But they really are everywhere you go and, and in everything you touch. There are protists just like there's bacteria.
2: And actually another very famous group of protists is algae. So another thing that's very interesting about protists is we've been talking quite a bit about the predatory and pathogenic protists. There are a lot of protists that photosynthesize just like plants do. There are some cases of protists that will both eat other things and photosynthesize. So it's a a very bizarre, diverse, dynamic group of organisms.
0: Getting back to, obviously, your research and and food, because that is something you were saying that, you know, uh, we all need to survive. And also, of course, there seems to be much more of a push these days as well for plant-based products as well. We're seeing, like, the world not turning away from meat, but, you know, they certainly are looking At plant based products, and they're becoming much more mainstream. So, obviously, there's going to be more demand for that in the future. So, tell us a little bit more about how your research is going to sort of help in these areas.
1: Well, I think uh, Stephen mentioned nitrogen cycling as an important thing that protists do. So, protists are really important for eating a lot of the dead bacteria that's in the soil and turning it into nutrients that the plant can access. Now, we use a lot of nitrogen fertilizers in America, and that's not really sustainable for the environment. And probably one of our biggest pollutants into the Long Island Sound is nitrogen that people are putting on their lawns, are putting on our crops that runs off into the sound. So if we can find a way, you know, we're still in the exploratory process of figuring out what's there since this is such a new field. But eventually, we'd like to be able to figure out a way to use more protists to our advantage. So figure out which ones are really good at living next to certain plants and turning bacteria into that nitrogen. Hopefully, we can learn how to capitalize on that to be able to use less of this Fertilizers.
0: So ultimately what you're saying then is that, you know, they are the natural, so like fertilizer, we stop using so like man-made stuff, which we know isn't always the best stuff in the world. I mean, we can poison ourselves more sometimes than we can actually do good. So getting back to nature, basically.
1: Right. I think that's the holy grail of any area of agricultural research. It's not to just, uh, you know, develop products, but how to make agriculture use less inputs or more sustainable inputs. So this is better for the farmers. You know, growers don't like to use more expensive products. And we want things that make less of an impact on the environment. Growing food is one of the most water-consuming, fossil fuel-consuming, and highly impactful things that we do as a human species. So all of these data and all of this research is ultimately going toward finding easier and less impactful ways to do that.
0: One question I want to put to both of you is there's always been a little bit of controversy behind GMO. That varies from country to country. How is this different to GMO?
1: Well, so we're not actually doing anything to the plant. When you think of genetic modification, that can be either inserting a gene or editing a gene of a crop species. And then that is released as a product after many, many years of safety testing. So this is a different concept in which you are using bacteria and applying it to the soil. So this, you know, traditionally, it's been single bacterial species. For a long time, even organic growers have been using Bacillus thuringiensis, which is BT, directly on crops. Now certain genes from that, uh, the BT gene has been incorporated into GMO plants. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about inoculating soil with naturally occurring microorganisms. This can be sold as a product, but also can be just sometimes grown or can use healthy soil practices to enhance the beneficial microbiota as well.
0: And because you're looking at soil, obviously there are many different soil types. And of course, you know, when we go across the world, there's all the different soil types as well. You're obviously starting your, you, you know, your research here. I mean, are you hoping that you can possibly get some soil samples from other parts of the world as well as part of this research, or are you just concentrating at the moment here in the US and what you know is available right here and now?
1: Well, yes, right now we've done all of our research at Lockwood Farm here in Hamden, as well as our Griswold Farm. So. That is one of the most confounding factors of all of this microbial research is that it's highly localized and every – there's so many different factors of soil, um, moisture content and organic matter content and soil particle size that influence the microbial community as well as the plants that are there and the plant genes. So it can be very highly localized and a little bit difficult to tease out. So that's kind of why we're starting with one soil and see what patterns that we can see with just our soil in here in Connecticut. And then, yes, I think that would be a A good way to go in the future is to see how broadly the patterns that we are seeing are applicable across the board in other sites.
0: And I know, as you say, and you keep repeating, this is at its early stages. I mean, it's very exciting, sort of like research. Have you come across anything so far that confounded you or you were like, oh, wow, you know, you maybe didn't expect it?
1: I'll let Stephen answer that one. He's looking through the data right now.
0: Honestly, that I didn't expect.
2: Not really, no. We was- went
1: in with a very open mind because we really didn't know what to expect. But mm-hmm. early on, we are seeing that plants are sort of selecting for their own specific community of protists. So the protists that are we're seeing next to the plant within that one centimeter of the root are different than the protists that we see just from the soil. So that tells us that all of these exudates that the plant is leaking out – is causing a specialized protist community, protist microbiome.
0: So are we talking about an intelligence in plants then? Because, I mean, it's always been something that, you know, people comment about and lesser individuals will laugh about. But plants really are intelligent and do select stuff.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Plants can be pretty uh, manipulative.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the plants are working hard to use the sunlight to make all this carbon, and then they're just leaking 20% of it out the roots. And for a long time, I think that was thought to be just – an evolutionary mishap or a waste product. But but really, yes, it's farming. The plant itself is farming specific types of microbes to help itself out.
0: I just want to quickly get back to some of the little like facets of of the protists. They, they can be quite quirky. I mean, I saw a video which you produced, Lindsay, mm-hmm. in which you like refer to one type of protist as having like feet-like projectiles and it moves. I mean, tell us a little bit about this, because they seem as if they're quite quirky little things.
1: Oh, yes, there's... There are so many different types in terms of how they move and how they feed. So many people have seen an amoeba, which sort of can squeeze its body into tiny crevices and and move all around. There are some that have plates of armor that look like, sort of an armadillo like structure under the microscope. There's some that have little mouths and you can see the bacterial particles being swept up into the mouth by this little cilia that it's got called arms. And yeah, there's some that have these foot like structures called pseudopods so they can crawl along a surface. So these all can move through the soil in different ways and and then when they run out of nutrients they form these little cysts so they can just sort of live in these cyst structures that are kind of like spores, I guess, that can totally dry out and still come back to life. So they're quite funny under the microscope. They're quite fun to watch, I think. One that's really interesting is called Vampirella. uh, There's been kind of a viral video going around Twitter right now showing Vampirella sucking all the insides out of cells. So it can move along a long algae uh, filament or a fungal hyphae and just go along cell by cell and suck all the insides out of the cell, crawl along, roll along to the next cell and suck all the insides out of as well. And this is one that might be very good at combating pathogens or, or killing certain pathogens in the soil.
0: It's absolutely fascinating. Of course, because it's all microscopic, we don't see it around us. And of course, you know, typical of us human beings, if we don't see it, it doesn't seem to exist to us. But I mean, it is, you know, an incredible, as you say, field of science. You both must be incredibly excited to be part of this, because as you were saying at the top of this podcast, it is still a relatively new and I'm guessing not many sort of laboratories of your calibre and, and of both of your calibre as well as, as scientists are doing this type of work. So you must be very excited to be part of this.
1: Yes, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have someone on the team with protestology experience. This is a new area for a lot of us. So we kind of proposed to the USDA to... Uh, give us funding to do this work, despite having so little experience in protists, because there really were no other laboratories in the United States trying to figure out what protists on, are on plants. Compared with hundreds of laboratories literally figuring out what bacteria and what fungi are on plants, we're trying to figure out what protists are doing to influence those other patterns that all these other research groups are finding.
2: To add to that, so especially with the uh, soil work where, you know, we've we've barely been uh, scratching the surface. And uh, as Lindsay was mentioning, we're effectively the only lab in the United States that's working on this particular set of microorganisms. Now, as far as protists are concerned, in general, they're very poorly studied. And the bulk of the uh, research has actually been on marine protists. So it's been, well, and also, as I mentioned uh, earlier, there are some protists that are actually digestive symbionts, termites and cockroaches. So yeah, this is a exciting wide open field, which we're, we're hoping, I mean, we've already made some interesting discoveries, and we're hoping to, uh, to build on
0: those. You got any timelines that you you sort of like have to work to at all, or is just just a case of this is ongoing research, and you know as and when these discoveries come up, we we'll get to hear about them.
1: Oh, yes. So we're an open book, but we've been spending the last couple summers uh, gathering all the data in the field, and it just takes a while to do all the sequencing and extraction to figure out what's there. In in collaboration with our Yukon, we're collaborating with a lab at Yukon, and they've been successful in isolating about 150 protists from the soil. So we're getting an idea of what's out there and what's in the soil. But I think our biggest contribution is so far is just figuring out how to figure out what protists are there. So Stephen's been able to develop tools for the first time where microbiologists can actually sequence out the protists that are there. It's kind of... It's difficult to study these invisible microorganisms. Only one of them, 1% of bacteria can be cultured on a plate, right? So you're kind of going in blind into the dark. I kind of liken it to the development of telescopes. So for a long time, we only knew about the stars in the sky that emitted light to Earth because we were only using telescopes that could see light And then we invented telescopes that could see radio signals and ultraviolet light and other types of signals. So what you see is dependent on the tools that you have. And so Stephen has developed new techniques to expand the current tools we're using to not only be able to see bacteria and not only be able to see fungi, but to be able to see fungi, protists, and nematodes, which are tiny worms, and microscopic insects at the same time. So this is just opening the door to us being able to see how all these other new groups are influencing each other.
0: Cutting edge science then. Oh, absolutely. You must be very excited about that then, Stephen. I mean, obviously, I can see that you're both excited about it. But as Lindsay was saying, to create the tools, which, of course, are so important.
2: This is, uh, I'll uh, it's all cutting-edge work, and it's work that I really hope that other people will learn from and be able to to build off of. It's fantastic to be uh, in in this position where you know we get to be we get to be the uh, the trendsetters or the groundbreakers mm-hmm. uh, in this field.
0: Well, not just that, but ultimately, world changers, because this, as you say, has so many ramifications for people for the planet. For, for so many things. We look forward to, obviously, when you're you know, super famous and hopefully you'll come <laughs> back and you'll talk to us again.
1: As famous as a uh, can get.
0: <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Lindsay Triplett and Dr. Stephen Terram from the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. And the station's website, again, can be found at ct.gov forward slash c-a-e-s. That's all from this edition of Coasting Country. Thank you for listening and we'll be dishing up another serving of science very soon.